zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Happy Birthday to Me, released May 15th, 1981. It was written by John C.W. Saxton, Peter Jobin, and Timothy Bond, based on a story by Saxton, with uncredited work from John Beard, directed by J. Lee Thompson, and released by Columbia Pictures. Jamie Lynn Siegler was born the day this film released. Happy birthday, Meadow Soprano. Okay, thank you for <laughs> telling me who, who that, that is. <laughs> is that uh, Britney Spears' sister, yeah. but with a different last name? Okay, honestly, I kind of thought that. <laughs> yeah. This is another Section 3 video nasty, pretty tame one, I would say. Yeah. Earlier this year, producers John Dunning and Andre Link worked together producing My Bloody Valentine, which actually started production one week after this film wrapped. Obviously, My Bloody Valentine had a deadline in the form of the titular holiday, while birthdays famously occur year-round. Obviously, the film was another in a long string of holiday horror that Dunning and Link believed would have universal appeal because everyone has a birthday and Jehovah's Witnesses apparently don't matter. <laughs> But, like, I don't, I'm not like, hey, I have a birthday. I'm going to go see a birthday movie. Yeah. <laughs> a movie about people with birthdays? <laughs> That's me. <laughs> a very merry unbirthday to me. <laughs> exactly. John Saxton, an English professor at the University of Toronto, was hired to develop the story, which he based on an article he read about frogs using electricity for cell regeneration. I don't think the frogs are using that electricity <laughs> i think they are you mean like electric reactions in the body no in in the frog's body like the frog isn't sitting like kermit's not in the lab doing the experiment <laughs> no but the frog is using electricity within its body to regenerate cells oh okay i it, it sounded more like the frog was the scientist in that sentence <laughs> they're, they're flying kites with little keys attached to them. yeah <laughs> Glenn Ford was reportedly embarrassed to be appearing in a slasher film, and his struggles with alcohol on set culminated in a fight wherein Ford allegedly punched assistant director Charles Brave. The special effects were handled by Tom Berman, though sadly most did not survive through to the film's final cut. It was submitted repeatedly to the MPAA and kept coming back with an X rating. In place of decent gore effects, the film was drenched in blood by the overzealous splashing of director J. Lee Thompson, who just wandered around the set with a bucket between takes. Unfortunately, unlike My Bloody Valentine, it seems the gorier version of all the film's kills have been lost. Fifteen cars were destroyed over the course of shooting the film, with various bridge stunts, including one that went wrong, breaking both of the stunt driver's ankles. It's no good. God. There were definitely more than one car dropped. In right. The yeah, I definitely noticed some discrepancies in, <laughs> in uh, which way did we go uh, turtle up? What, it, what is it? When you Turn turtle? Turn turtle. Thank you. <laughs> turtle up. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like from the video game something. Every time you get an extra life, turtle up. 
Columbia's marketing department ignored the distaste of the filmmakers for the poster, which is probably the best-remembered aspect of the film, a still frame of a shocked man about to be stabbed through the back of the throat with a shish kebab, usually accompanied by the tagline, John will never eat shish kebab again, despite nobody in the film being named John. <laughs> we start the film on campus at night. Bernadette O'Hare walks down a path that's never explicitly mentioned in the film, but according to the script, this takes place at the fictional town of Exeter, Massachusetts. Suddenly, something wraps around her legs and she falls to the ground, but it was just a dog leash that she tripped over. Yeah, it, it seemed more like it was whipped at her. Yeah, like she it, seemed attacked. Yeah, it, it even kind of makes like a whoops. <laughs> like sound like as if Indiana Jones just <laughs> lassoed her. Just like, ah, watch me knock over college kids. <laughs> she looks up, face to face with a very sweet looking bulldog named Winston that barks a bit until his owner, Mrs. Patterson, quiets him. Patterson lectures Bernadette for being out so late. She says she was headed out to the village to meet friends at the inn. You mean the second home for the Crawford Top Ten, don't you? Isn't that what the elite of the senior class like to call themselves? Mrs. Patterson suggests that if these students spent as much time studying as they do drinking, they could all be at Harvard tomorrow. Is this a high school or a college? That I was unclear for 90% of the film. Yeah. I think by the end, I settled on high school. I think so too. Which but bothers me because they're at the pub like half the yeah, time. <laughs> yeah. They're drinking a lot for at kids a, who are not public, 21. At a public house, like not at like... I just called a pub a public house. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it, yeah. It's very old-fashioned. I'm, I'm just saying, they weren't they weren't in private like teenagers do. No, they were at ye old pub. <laughs> <laughs> and don't, don't be upset about public house. I, I often say carriage return when I'm talking about hitting what enter. What the hell? <laughs> carriage return. Yeah, insert a carriage return. It's where you drop your horses off at the end of the ride. Because <laughs> how, how am I supposed to indicate a line break? I guess I can say line, line break. break. Oh my gosh. How embarrassing for you to discover mid-sentence. Press enter, which you also just told us. But if this is supposed to be a college, why is Mrs. Patterson giving Bernadette shit for attending this school instead of Harvard? So upon looking it up, it looks like that in, in 81, there was still a ton of states that had drinking ages of 18 or 19. What about Massachusetts? Uh, Pretty sure it was 21. Massachusetts is a good question don't have a list specifically man high school would have been more fun if everybody could have bought beer the whole time uh it was raised to 21 in 1985 prior well, what was it before that uh it was let's see 73 lowered to 18 79 raised to 20 so i guess it was actually 20 at the time of this and then movie. it bumped up to 21 but either way you're not 20 in high school so no you're not but is this Massachusetts for sure? According to the script, it is. Okay. Well, there was a ton of states that at that time still had yeah. 18-year-old laws. Patterson gives Bernadette a curfew for some reason as they part ways. Bernadette jokes to herself that Patterson is going to get head from her dog later. Come along, Winston. Give mommy head. <laughs> Bernie hops in her car, which is sitting there unlocked with the keys in the glove compartment, but before she can start it, she is strangled in the driver's seat. I really wanted this to just be one of those automatic seat belts, but they probably didn't exist at the oh. time. <laughs> She's like, ah, oh my god, and then she realizes it's just the car. It's a person wearing black gloves in the back seat, and the strangulation goes on for a while. She is dragged fully up over the seat and kicks at the car ceiling for a moment. 
She tries to kick open a door to escape, but eventually goes limp. When the killer releases her, she jumps up again and runs from the car. So did she fake it? Yes. I was like, I was like, oh man, that's that's something I've always thought about. Like if I was faking ever ten- your own death when being murdered. Yeah. Yeah. So that they let go of you. <laughs> yeah, but but I pretending I, to choke or suffocate or yeah. drown sooner. Yeah, but I, I think I would always just be too panicked. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to think about it. Yeah. I think I would think about it if I was underwater. That would be the one where I would be like, okay, I'm gonna pretend to die. Soon. I don't know. I feel like no matter when, if you if you are being you know strangled or suffocated in, in any way, if you don't have oxygen, I think those instincts just kick in and you start flailing to yeah. try to get air. <laughs> like Kenneth in the elevator. Yeah, you'll strangle me with my belt. <laughs> I will fight you. It's just human nature. <laughs> Unfortunately, Bernadette only goes like four car spots across the lot before stopping again. One of the cars right next to her suddenly pops open, and it turns out that the attacker has climbed through multiple parked cars, which are all sitting here unlocked, apparently. A glove grabs her arm, sending her racing away again, but she pauses for a moment to give the killer time to circle around her again. Yeah, I I was like, why do you keep stopping? Just keep running. Then she crashes head on into someone whose face we can't see, which is always a good sign. (gasps) Oh, thank God. (gasps) Thank God. She notices the person she found is opening a straight razor in their black gloved hand. Bernadette is slashed hard across the neck, and we cut to a bridge opening to allow a boat passage. Okay, so up until this point, has she not seen the killer? I think it's possible that the person stayed behind her for the entire strangulation period in the car. Because she's surprised here. Yes. But she's obviously indicating that she knows this person. Right. She can see their face now. Is also the killer, unless we're to understand there's two. No, I think it's it's the same person. It's the got same out of the person, so she just around. must not have seen this person up yeah. until this point. And now she thinks that the person is here to save her from the killer, but it turns out this person is the killer. If this person is known by the victim, why did they sneak through a bunch of cars? Why wouldn't they have just popped out sooner and been like, oh, hey, friend? I don't know. There's a lot of questions that are going to come up like that in the next hour. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also, based on her line of, I guess, not questioning, but she says, like, you have to help me. It's like, okay, so this is someone who's capable of helping. Right. Like, like not like, like let's not get like, out of here together. Yeah, exactly. It's not like, like, I was like, is it like an adult? Is it, is it like a police officer? Like, who, who, who is she seeing that she says, you can help me. You can save me from a killer yeah. versus we need to get out of here. There is a killer. Okay. So Richard, if you're being chased by a killer and I popped up in front of you, am I the kind of person you would ask for help from? Or do you say, let's get out of here? I would say, let's get out of here. Ouch. <laughs> he would say the same thing for me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I would sure. too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might trip If I Patrick. saw Jess, I'd be like, Jess, you got to save me. <laughs> I don't it, want anyone to have to fight a killer who's coming after me. That's not That's true. That's Even not, if it was the cop, you'd be like, let's get out of here, officer. Yeah. There's a maniac with a straight razor. I know you have guns and stuff. And you were itching to use them. <laughs> <laughs> in the original cut, this neck bled profusely, but obviously that's not in the final cut. We don't even see it bleed. We just see a line open up across the neck. We drift toward the Silent Woman Tavern, where a crowd of Shriners are halfway through a rendition of 99 bottles of beer on the wall. A group of the top 10 are sitting around a table in the corner, 
Rudy is annoyed by the song. Another of the elite kids, a French student named Etienne, says that these Americans lack class, and Anne pretends to punch him in the face. A third guy, Greg, tells his girlfriend Amelia that he's also furious about this music. He does not like the Shriner singing. So, question. Are the girlfriends in the top ten, or are they dating one of the members of the top ten? They're in the top ten. They are in the top ten. Yep. They only date within their top ten circle. Correct. But you can date literally anybody in that circle at the same time. Etienne is nuzzling into Anne's neck at the table, and she reminds him repeatedly that his girlfriend, Bernadette, will be here any minute. She won't. Instead, Virginia arrives, affectionately referred to as Ginny. Do you guys recall the last Ginny that we had as the main character of a slasher? No. Friday the 13th Part 2. Wasn't even that long ago. I don't even remember this movie. This one's called, uh, Happy Birthday to Me. (laughs) (laughs) The last person from their friend group arrives, a nerdier guy named Alfred. The Shriners seem annoyed by all the noise coming from the top ten table now. Ginny invites Alfred to take a seat beside her, and her friends ask if he brought George tonight. He did. George is a rat that he keeps in his pocket. And I already knew I wasn't going to like this scene. I have nothing against rats, but I always hate movie scenes where there's a tiny pet on set that could easily be killed by accident from people stepping on it. Well, yeah, and like, if this is a beloved pet of his, I don't understand what they're about to do. I wouldn't bring it to a rowdy bar where my friends get wasted all the time either. Well, well also, we will quickly learn that Alfred is not their friend. and he. But he's they, in the top ten. Yeah, but that that's that's it. I mean, he he's yeah. like elected to office. He's not That's true. He, they hang out with him because his parents make enough for him to fit in the top 10. Yeah. To add to my anxiety, he starts handing the rat around the table to all these drunken assholes. The Shriners, momentarily confused by the interruption, decide to start their song over at 100 bottles and Greg loses it. He picks a fight with one of the Shriners, Milt, and Rudy starts hatching a plot with Etienne. Alfred asks Virginia if he can buy her a drink. And she reminds him of the rule that everybody buys their own drinks. Unclear if this is a self-imposed rule or something they're required to do. We will learn later that Ginny is the oldest of the bunch, so maybe it's a rule to prevent underage drinking, but it never plays into anything. Anne asks to hold George the Rat, and Rudy offers to buy a stein of beer for Milt, by way of apology for his friend's behavior. The man seems impressed. Suddenly, Alfred notices nobody's holding George and asks where he went. Anne says she dropped him by accident, but for some reason didn't bother to tell Alfred. While Alfred scours the floor under the table, we see that, in fact, Anne handed off the rat to Rudy. Rudy stands from the table to drop the rat in Milt's incoming stein. He notices the rat before the drink gets to his lips, and he drops the drink to the floor. All the kids start making a run for it, and Alfred is barely able to scoop up George before he is crushed underfoot. The Shriners start chasing the kids out the door. As they get to their cars in the parking lot, one of the top ten, Steve, notices the drawbridge is being raised for a passing boat and suggests they play the game. The bartender holds the Shriners back in the bar's doorway and he tells them he's going to let the headmistress know about their hijinks tonight. Why is he holding them back? I don't know. Like, I I guess, like, because I guess, like, beating up a bunch of kids. Or the kids beating up your other customers would be bad. But I was just like, let them, let them once they're out of the bar <laughs> but they're all customers you want to come back so the more people make it home Are safe they? the better well maybe not I, yeah. i'm sure the kids spend a lot of money there that's true they're rich Anne shoves virginia into greg's car and the drivers all count off their numbers rudy is number one Anne is number two etienne is number three on his motorcycle steve is number four and greg is fifth but steve bets him twenty dollars that he doesn't have the balls 
One at a time, the cars peel away from the lot and toward the raised bridge. Rudy crosses first when it's barely open, and Annie is close behind. Etienne clears a sizable gap on his bike. The bridge is almost all the way up now, but Steve pulls over right before the bridge, and Greg zooms past him. Virginia, in Greg's passenger seat, is terrified by the game and urges him not to do it. Greg comes down almost vertical on the other side of the bridge and completely fucks up his car's front end in the process. Ginny is having a panic attack in the car and wrestling with the wheel after they've landed, but Greg refuses to take his foot off the gas even as Ginny leans out of the car as if prepared to tuck and roll. The kids further ahead seem impressed that Greg made the jump, but Anne is concerned to see Ginny rush off into the wilderness and tries to chase after her, eventually giving up. But, like, I feel like it's not weird to have had a panic attack in yeah, that moment. Not at all. Like, the, <laughs> I don't think that you need to have had a traumatic moment right. related to bridge raising in the past in right. order to be freaking out about is it this. not this specific bridge that her incident happened at no too? it is yeah. i'm okay. just saying i feel like this movie is like look she's re- like why is she being so why weird is she being you'll so find weird. out later yeah <laughs> it's like, like no 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 like, i get it now they needed to write some excuse in later and i'm like <laughs> why did you bother this is upsetting <laughs> amelia asks if they should go after her but rudy reminds everybody that she lives off in that direction and probably ran home but what does that mean like i don't have a sense of that like in the sense of keep saying sense uh how far i mean it seems pretty close based on the geography of the rest of the movie it seems like her mom's grave is like five minutes that way and it's basically in her front yard or it's at least like a very short walk to the house from the grave oh that's like a that's deep man yeah (laughs) very short walk from the house to the grave richard don't piss me off Greg suddenly remembers that because Steven chickened out that he owes Greg $20 to go towards the thousands of dollars of damage that he just did to his car. Anne stares angrily off into the woods in Ginny's direction under ominous music, and we cut to Ginny strolling through a cemetery. She pauses by a headstone and kneels, and we see the shadow of someone approaching her, but whoever it is is wearing a long scarf exactly like the one Ginny is wearing. She speaks out loud to the memory of her mother, Estelle Wainwright. The rest of the headstone reads... 1943 to 1975, beloved mother of Virginia and wife of Harold, you are with us still. So apparently her mother was only 32 when she died six years ago. Ginny opens a small box and withdraws some garden shears to trim the grass around her mother's grave. Someone's POV watches her work through the graveyard fog. You'd be proud of me now, mother. All the kids like me. I'm even one of the top ten. We go everywhere together. Ginny hears someone tromping through the plants, and in the watcher's POV, we see a gloved hand pull down a branch to see Ginny unobstructed. Ginny calls to the darkness, and when nobody responds, she makes a run for it, but eventually crashes into a stranger's arm at the cemetery gate. At first, she seems not to recall Etienne's name. You. He offers to walk her home, but she refuses, reminding him that she lives right around the corner, and he tells her he knows exactly where she lives. She has to wrestle free of his grasp before making her way home. I'm wondering if they're trying to establish that people just refer to each other as, oh, it's you, yeah. you. Just so to- that it makes sense when we can't see them. Yeah. Her father hears her arrive and asks where she's been. Etienne continues watching her house from outside. Her father seems pissed that she visits her mother's grave so often. The interaction between them is so bizarre that I'd have bet money that this was directed by someone with a loose grasp of the English language. Uh, I was like... 
oh man this is serious creepy father vibes yeah it's creepy everybody vibes but then like it's like oh no they're like i thought for sure she was gonna be like shying away from him like oh he's so close and and touchy it was like oh no this is just exactly how their relationship is and they like each other very much have you been over there again i don't know why it bothers you so much Jenny, I thought we agreed. No, we didn't agree. You told me what to do. I don't even have the right to go visit my own mother's grave. Jenny, Jenny, Jenny. Dad hugs her and apologizes while outside, Etienne makes a move for Jenny's second floor bedroom window. Dad reminds Jenny that she can't live in the past, but her doctors told her that she'll never be completely cured if she keeps repressing the memories. Dad worries that if she remembers everything about her past, it might spoil her on the town, but she doubts it. I love this house. I like living here. I like my school. I like my friends. I kept hearing the voice of that little girl from that viral video, (laughs) liking all of her stuff. Now my whole house is great. I can do anything good. I like my school. I like anything. I like my dad. I like my cousins. I like my aunts. I like my Allisons. I like my mom. I like my sister. Jenny's dad agrees to stay if this is where she wants to be. He shoves her off toward her bedroom, just as Etienne is sneaking up outside her window and climbing inside. The room is dark when Jenny enters, but she notices the open window immediately. She shuts the door, locks it, puts on some music, and starts undressing. We see a POV from the closet watching her as she slips out of her panties and just drops them on the floor on her way to the shower. She's startled by the silhouette of a person behind the shower curtain, but it turns out it was just a nothing. (laughs) The shadow in the shape of a person was cast by literally nothing. The POV approaches the open bathroom door behind Ginny, and then she hears wind howling through the open window again. This time she slams it so hard that she knocks a bunch of shit off of her desk and then screams when it all clatters to the floor. We see Etienne hit the ground floor outside, having jumped from the roof, and he books it into the night. We cut to the campus the next day, and Ginny and Anne are rushing to class several minutes late. At first I assume she was an instructor here, but Headmistress Patterson is lecturing them on arriving late and for their hijinks the night before at the Silent Woman. She asks where Bernadette might be, and specifically questions Steve Maxwell. I know she was with you last night. Steve seems to be hiding his face from view. Patterson moves on to asking the others, but they insist they never saw her that night. She gives up her line of questioning, assuring them she'll get to the bottom of this mystery before turning to the actual teacher and giving back control of the classroom. Their professor starts to tell them about static electricity, and Rudy begins turning a dial on a piece of equipment on the teacher's desk. The teacher's hair starts sticking up in the air, but it takes him a while to notice. What's so funny? (laughs) Yes, Mr. Van Der Poel, quite the comedian. But the really funny thing about static electricity is that it can be discharged. (laughs) He points close to Rudy's nose, and a big illustrated electrical shock fills the space between them. The teacher begins a demonstration wherein electricity is applied to a set of disembodied frog's legs to emulate muscle contraction. As Ginny watches, a glowing red light envelops her face as she drifts into a memory. We see a bald Ginny, in a very narrow brain scanning machine. She flops around like she's having a seizure, but a doctor tells her father that this is a completely normal reaction to the regeneration of brain tissue that she is experiencing. 
which is a weird thing to say because we'll learn that this experiment has been performed on no one so far. Yeah. <laughs> so for this to be a completely normal reaction, he's like, well, it's happened to the only patient so far. That makes it normal. L- literally everything that happened to her was normal. It's a very average reaction. <laughs> totally average. Yeah, she died. That's average. <laughs> the doctors are suddenly concerned by something on her monitors, and they ask if Ginny can hear them. In a wider shot, Ginny is suddenly alone in the room, and she sits up to mumble, My birthday. We cut back to the present, and Ginny is looking at neurons in a microscope. She is in the office of her psychologist, Dr. Faraday, played by Glenn Ford, who for sure had better things to do than be in this movie. He tells her that the experimental treatment she underwent is a lot like when a salamander loses its tail. The uh, salamander's nervous system creates a kind of an electric field around the site of the wound. So what he did was he developed this apparatus which reproduced this field in human beings. He says that the field would cause restoration of all damaged cells, including brain cells, which is weird because presumably the DNA used to create the replacement brain cells wouldn't have the same lost memories coded to it. But he claims that all of her lost memories are going to be recovered by this process. Ginny was apparently the first test of this technology. A guinea pig. Yes, but a very successful guinea pig. A Ginny pig. Yeah. Oh, sorry, was, do you make that joke? That, that's my line right here, <laughs> which I'm assuming is why they named her Ginny in the movie. <laughs> and Faraday because... Because he lives in a cage. Because of electrical fields. Right. But he's not the one doing the that's surgery true. stuff. He's just telling her how it works. Faraday points to the memories she has already recovered as evidence of the treatment's effectiveness. He assures her that with time, all her memories, even some very painful ones, will be restored to her. He promises not to let anyone or anything hurt her, and they share a weirdly loving embrace for a doctor-patient duo. We cut to Etienne blazing down a dirt bike track. The rest of the Elite Ten are all rooting for him. Rudy admits to having 50 bucks wagered on the race. Etienne wins the race, and his friends rush out to congratulate him. Steve says their bet has paid out a $200 win, which they plan to immediately blow at the silent woman. After the race, Alfred watches Ginny speak to Etienne. No, it's just too bad Bernadette wasn't here to see you win. I had to win. I was carrying this next to my heart. He whips out the panties that she dropped on the floor of her room the night that he snuck in. She leaves, appropriately disgusted by his behavior, and Alfred sticks around to stare him down. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a Woody Allen-type character as the nerd of the bunch named Alfred, who liked to stare at jocks who disrespected the girls he was crushing on? Friday the 13th Part 2? No. Oh, no, it was the other one. <laughs> the Friday the 13th Part the 2 ripoff. Oh. Hey, you you were with me on that one. Yeah. <laughs> you, both, you were both nodding to I, the Friday I, the 13th I, Part 2. Until you said no, and, and I, like, I remember. Ah, uh, God damn it. They're the same movie. It's they are. fine. Ginny tells Anne that she gets why Bernadette left him, but Anne says that Bernie is totally horny for Etienne's bullshit. We cut to a slender man in all black but white shoes moving down a wet concrete staircase. The person pushes open a door to find Etienne working on his bike in the garage. Etienne has the wheel spinning while he works on the bike, but the stranger creeps up and tosses Etienne's scarf into the wheel, which eventually pulls Etienne's face against the spinning spokes. The killer revs the bike's engine to finish the job, and we cut back to the silent woman where people are starting to question the man of the hour's absence. Okay, this is like shop class 101. 
You don't wear any dangly clothing that's not allowed. You pull your hair back. Like, that's just, that's just, it's his own fault he died. And the same goes for if you're doing silhouette dancing for the beginning of a ninja movie. (laughs) Nothing dangly. For some reason, Greg doesn't give a shit about Etienne here, though, and he changes the subject bizarrely to Alfred, who these kids wouldn't even notice was missing. Hey, you guys, no answer at Etienne. You think he'd come to his own celebration? Yeah, and where the hell is Alfred anyways? Oh, he's on a new biology project. Stuff students. Oh, come on, you guys. He's your regular all-American boy. Ghoul, all-American. Ghoul. <laughs> come on, Steve. He's not that bad. You know, I think these girls like Alfred. I think they would like to be stuffed by Alfred. Oh, why don't you get stuffed, Rudy? God, you're gross. Maggie hates the vulgar way that Rudy speaks, and Steve tries to intervene, advising them to kiss and make up before kissing Maggie on the lips to verify that her kisses are in working order. Rudy doesn't react at all to the guy making out with his girlfriend beside him, which doesn't jive with the character we've been introduced to. We cut to Anne and Ginny, who've been dispatched to look for, no, not Etienne, the jock dirt biker star who won all the money they're drinking with tonight, but Alfred, the nerdy kid who brings a fucking rat everywhere. That's who they left to go find, because they're worried about him. I guess they forgot an establishing shot for the scene, so it starts with two girls whose faces are cleverly obscured by shadow, speaking in exclusively ADR about how they're here to find Alfred. The two girls break into Alfred's place through an unlocked window. Alfred's room is loaded with taxidermy. We pan across a table littered with fake body parts to land on a head-shaped object under a rag in a bloody tray. Anne offers to lift the rag and reveals the head of Bernadette. It's clearly the actress with her head poked up through the table, and the girls make a run for it, but crash right into Alfred. He asks why they're here, and they tell him they were worried about him. Worried? About me? Maybe you were worried about Bernadette. He reaches toward the head and removes one of its eyes, and then flicks on the lights to reveal that the head on the tray with all the fake body parts around it, it's a fake head. I don't know. Removing the eye from the head didn't actually prove that the head wasn't real <laughs> well, to me. Well, all it proved is that she had a glass eye that we didn't know about. Yeah. Because it wasn't a full sphere. Right. Or he took out her regular eye because they would, you know, have spoiled fastest and he That's put true. a glass one in. There you go. But also, like, I don't really understand what they're trying to tell us here about Alfred. Like, does he. I think he's just a Savini type. Is he? Okay. He's an idiot like... Savini. <laughs> <laughs> but his room is littered with fake body parts. I okay, yeah. Like I thought at first, like it was about like doing taxidermy, and then I'm like, but it doesn't really jive with the idea that these are all like bloodied parts and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, something's going to happen later where they are setting up all kinds of weird yeah. morbid pranks. Well, and yeah, I'm like wondering... makeup effects and stuff like that. Yeah. But... So they needed to have an expert on it. So, so I'm wondering if there was some kind of unspoken prank off that was going to be occurring maybe whoever can create the biggest scene so this was in preparation for potentially uh tricking people yeah Yeah. that's what i think it just coincidentally coincides with actual murders right (laughs) Anne tells him this is a sick joke we cut to patterson's office Anne comes out and warns jenny that patterson means business and it looks like amelia will be heading in next Patterson has a tiny toupee on her desk, but nobody ever acknowledges it. Do you see this? <laughs> no. It's like a little fluff of hair. <laughs> I you sure it wasn't the dog? 
If it was, then they just chopped off the top half of its head and it's left that it that Radigan. To Radigan? To Radigan? No. No? <laughs> Patterson starts telling Ginny things that she already knows, but that we don't for our benefit. Virginia, your father is a very wealthy man. And I'm afraid that is the beginning of the trouble. You and all your gang. You think that because you are rich, you can sneer at people who have had to work hard. People who've had to fight to get a decent education. What is she talking about? What did Ginny do to anyone? When have we seen them sneering at people who have to work hard in this movie? She's being called in here because two of the ten rich kids, Bernadette and Etienne, have disappeared. How is this sneering at the working class? She seems angry at Ginny for somehow not forcing her friends to attend class. Ginny gets detention... For having missing friends. <laughs> so yeah. do the rest of the Elite Ten. They all get detention because their friends are missing. Well, I mean, they're tight-knit group who aren't telling anybody where the other ones are. So right. that seems suspicious. If I got detention because my friends skipped school, I would I would disappear next. <laughs> for sure. Their meeting is interrupted by a call from the French ambassador... Etienne's father. Outside, Anne reminds Ginny that the couple have probably just disappeared to fuck somewhere. Anne invites Ginny, and by extension the rest of the gang, to see High Noon at a special show tonight, which doesn't seem like a movie they'd be interested in. Sounds great. I love Gary Cooper. Really? That's totally just like the filmmaker trying to yeah. shoehorn that in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My movie's every bit as good as High Noon. Yeah, this is basically an allegory. <laughs> For High Noon. <laughs> In case you were curious. I actually have no idea what High Noon's about. I'm just going to it assume it's about... It has literally nothing to do with this. It's mm-hmm. it's the Wild no, no, West. No, no. It's about I a bunch of high school assume... kids that get it... murdered one at a time. It... <laughs> yeah, I'm going to assume it's all about somebody's birthday. Party. That's right. Yeah, I forgot. It's very birthday-centric, High Noon. <laughs> high Noon is when they were planning to cut the cake, and that's this whole thing. <laughs> we cut to the kids exiting the F.C. Smith Auditorium, which is located at Concordia University in Quebec not Exeter, Massachusetts, which, as I explained, does not exist. As they approach the parking lot discussing the film they just saw, they find Rudy leaning against a car. He's angry because Maggie never told him about the movie, and right now she's holding hands with Steve, which didn't bother Rudy earlier. Question. Yeah. I know that we casually looked up the drinking ages of the United States and Massachusetts, but since this was a Canadian production, what would be the drinking age Twelve. Canada? <laughs> Because maybe they were just assumed, like, they, like they, they'd have no knowledge of the drinking. We didn't look this up. Yeah. We just did it. <laughs> it's like in My Bloody Valentine where we were like, how old are these people? All I know is they're minors. <laughs> <laughs> we made that joke about seven times in that episode. I'm sure it was much less, though, in Canada. Well, I think I think it's currently 18, isn't it? Or is it more than that now? Well, it's cur- oh, okay, so it's... Quebec drinking age. Yeah, Qu- Quebec is still 18, apparently. Okay. So if they were seniors, they could have been. Yeah. Or could have been even younger in the 80s. Rudy and Steve are quickly yanking each other around by the collar until Greg intervenes and Rudy drives off angry. I I have to say, I don't know who any of these people are. I know that they have names. (laughs) Rudy and Maggie are a couple. How do you know this? Because they're a couple in the very first scene. I I just know them by name that they exist, not who they actually are in the movie. Oh, I know them. I know their souls. 
I had I had a similar problem though. I was like, not only does everybody look a little too similar to me but in they're this all movie, changeable, but yeah. they, they just seem to literally jump. in yeah. some cases. <laughs> <laughs> but they just seem to jump from relationship to to relationship. So yeah. I wasn't even sure who was supposed yeah. to be with who. Well, part of being on the top ten is that you're all on each other's list, so it means you're oh, allowed like to freebie? cheat with literally anybody. Yeah, with, with, with 10 characters to keep track of, and they don't say their names often enough. And they don't stay paired off. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's impossible to keep track. Too much intermingling. Ginny tells Alfred that he is now allowed to buy her a drink, and they head to the silent woman. We cut to a room where Greg is lifting weights. He calls out for Amelia. Amelia? But a person in black enters with white shoes. Oh, it's you. So I guess the killer's not Amelia. Spoiler alert. Greg asks the killer to add 10 pounds to the barbell, and they do. Greg benches the weight and then asks for 50 more pounds. You just asked for 10 more, and now you want 50 more? It seems backwards. But also, I think it's kind of a lot to ask. I mean, I guess there, I guess it's not 50 all at once. I was going to say, I, I yeah. feel like a large portion of these people would have trouble lifting a 50-pound weight, but it's probably yeah. 225s, technically. Or 10s and 5s. Yeah. I don't lift weights, but I think you should be adding less and less as you approach your maximum weight when greg gets the bar lifted and holds it above his neck the killer slides out the rack so greg has nowhere to put it down but it seems like there's still some decent options to put the weight down yeah like lifting the bar completely past your head and then dropping it behind you or tipping it off to the side but greg just shouts at the killer to put the rack back the killer takes a 22 pound weight and then drops it on greg's crotch causing him to drop the bar and smash his own neck hard enough to splash blood all over the room. Yeah, all over the room, keep in yeah. mind. Because we're going to come... The whole room is coated in blood. Yeah. Blood is takes a while to clean up. We cut to the killer closing a car door later, just as Amelia walks by with pizza and beer, and when she enters the room where Greg just was, she finds a spotless gym. And no Greg. Because the killer wasn't spotting... Uh, spotless. <laughs> but if Greg's not there, the killer can definitely carry more than 50 pounds. <laughs> right, because they put it all away. Standing by the door, Amelia is nearly crushed when the still fully loaded barbell, which was stood up behind the door, nearly falls on her. We push into Amelia's concerned face as we hear Ginny shouting, Kill him! Kill him! And we fade to the gang cheering on Rudy and Alfred in a soccer game. Someone pops up with money, betting against our home team, Crawford Academy. On the field, Rudy fucks up and the visitors get a penalty kick against the goalie, Alfred, but he blocks the shot. Right away, Rudy races back across the field and scores a goal before the whistle blows, ending the game. Crawford has won after all. Anne runs up and kisses Alfred on the lips to celebrate his big save, and he's completely disoriented by it. Ginny hugs Rudy to congratulate him, and Maggie sees them together. She clearly had something to say to Rudy, but looks devastated by this interaction, and runs away as Rudy asks Ginny if she's doing anything tonight, and she's available. Rudy tells Ginny that he'll meet her at the chapel, so Etienne was dating Bernadette, making out with Anne, and stealing Ginny's undies, Maggie is dating Rudy and Steve, and Rudy is dating Maggie and Ginny. On his way to the chapel, Rudy notices a scarf sticking out of the soil under the rose bushes and buries it with his hands. What? Oh, what? <laughs> Why did he do that with the scarf? He saw the scarf sticking out and he pushed it back because it was a joke. It's a hilarious joke that he did. 
Is it a joke? I think the joke yeah. is leaving the scarf hanging out so that anyone notices it at all. Yeah, and then finds it. Yeah. I don't understand what's happening. But he notices the scarf is sticking out of the soil, and he's like, oh, I got to rebury that. Later, we see Rudy lead Ginny up the stairs to the bell tower of the chapel. He's surprised she's never been up here because, as he says, he keeps forgetting that she's new to the school. What does that mean? How do you forget that you recently met someone? <laughs> it's, you seem like old friends. Yeah. Yes. She corrects him that she's actually not new here because she went here four years ago for a few weeks, but everybody's forgotten her. Right. So is she four years older than everyone else? No, I think that this is this isn't this is not a college. This is like a I don't know, it's a private school. Some schools go all the grade levels. So, so. then it doesn't matter how old they are because if she came here when she was 16 and she came back 4 years later then she's 20. Why is she going to the same school 4 years later? No, 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 no. I think she came here when she was like 14. And okay. now she's a senior at mm -hmm. this school, and they will be graduating and going off to prestigious colleges. So she just colleges. skipped the middle years? Well, I imagine she was either homeschooled or... Took an equivalency test. Yeah. Also, it doesn't matter when you have money. You could do whatever the fuck you want. That's true. <laughs> Why is she bothering with school then? Yeah. <laughs> Rudy dips into a Peter Lorre impersonation. I will never forget you, my darling. <laughs> Rudy... Ginny is weirdly amused by the impression, and Rudy just starts running around brushing away cobwebs and professing his love to this crawl space. He starts into a Quasimodo impression, and Ginny jokes that next he'll be hanging from the bell rope, and it gives Rudy an idea. But here, again, is one of those scenes that makes me think the film was written in another language and then poorly translated to English. Rudy sits by the pulley, and he looks down the rope into the church where someone would yank the rope to ring the bell. Virginia... You know, if I cut this bell rope almost all the way through. No. Rudy, no. Her reaction to this line is confounding. I don't even know what he's proposing, <laughs> but she's reacting like it's remotely dangerous. As far as I can tell, if he cuts the rope most of the way through, the next time someone pulls the rope, they run the risk of tearing it, and then the rope will fall harmlessly into the church. It wouldn't hurt anybody. It's a rope. Yeah. I mean, I, does she think that the bell on the other side will fall? Yeah. I don't know if don't, that's what she thinks. I don't really understand what that meant. The worst part of this is that they would need to buy a new rope. It's not even a prank, really. It's just defacing part of the church. You might as well just punch out a random window of the building. It's exactly as funny, but also annoying to fix. Virginia... I've got a knife. He looks at her like the coincidence is forcing him to cut the rope. Virginia. Don't go away. I can't tell which of these characters is supposed to be having the psychotic break. Rudy slams shut the door to prevent her escape and approaches her with the knife as her world fades to black and we cut to blood droplets collecting under the rope on the church floor. A priest enters to pull the rope and from above, there is clearly no blood on the ground. He yanks the rope, and just as expected, it breaks and falls into the church. Sweet prank, bro. <laughs> Jesus. The priest notes the sliced end of the rope is drenched in blood, and he cries out, Help! Murder! 
We cut to Ginny running full speed through the hospital toward Faraday's office. In the hallway, a patient with a bloody head injury has rolled past her and she is launched into another flashback. Judging from the EKG, her heart is beating 10 beats a second. It's just a solid zigzag. We see a surgeon making an incision in the top of Ginny's shaved head. The seam of the prosthetic is hidden by a fabric wall separating Ginny's face from the surgery site. They cut open a flap of head skin and then start drilling with a massive bit into the skull, making what they call a bone flap. <laughs> That's what they say when they're opening up the skull. I don't think that it would really technically be a flap. Well, that's what they call it. She appears to be conscious during the procedure. As soon as they get the skull opened, brains are being extruded through the bone flap, and the doctor <laughs> declares her dead immediately while her heartbeats are still ringing wildly about the room. Should have carved a crescent moon shape. Yeah. Apparently, the man playing the hands of the surgeon was a real neurosurgeon. But I can't imagine this that was... This is where they went for real. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that was remotely necessary, given how fake the brains looked on their own. Cerebral edema, she's finished. Close her up. Now close her. She's dead. Ginny is shouting for someone to stop the doctor that declared her dead, but quickly realizes that she's shouting in the present in Faraday's office, and she's just experienced another recovered memory like she's trapped in a terrifying Breath of the Wild mod where all the memories are hospital-based <laughs> instead of princess-based. She seems to be misremembering those words spoken during her operation as the doctor killing part of her brain, but Faraday explains that the memories will continue to regenerate in pieces. Ginny corrects him that she's not talking about the surgery. She's talking about Rudy with the knife in the bell tower. He killed a part of her somehow. Faraday offers to take her home for much-needed rest and promises to investigate the bell tower. At Faraday's home later, not at the bell tower, he just went home, we see him listening to a radio as the disappearances of two additional students is announced. Even though he was going to take her home to rest first, when Faraday gets to the bell tower, Ginny is already in the building and freaking out because Rudy is actually missing. She didn't imagine the encounter. Faraday finds Jenny and drags her into the library stacks to talk. He asks her to describe again what happened in the bell tower. Mrs. Patterson eavesdrops on the entire conversation. One of the policemen on the scene tells another that they've discovered something important outside, and everyone rushes to get a look. Everyone except Ginny, who just stands in the library, bored for a while, because she needs to be alone for the next scene. So, like, I know we don't want to get into spoilers. I'm really confused about Faraday, and like, because he seems super concerned as if he's trying to cover something up i know yeah. that we have like i know that we have like red herrings all over i don't know if place, he's trying to cover it up but, or if he's worried that she killed someone and he wants to get all the precise information so that he knows what's going on okay so this is like i mean is is this like a dress to kill moment where we're like we're not yeah we're not gonna say you're crazy till we know for sure yeah she's he, he's the uh, david margulies doctor who's like now hold on why don't you come to my office and we'll talk about everything that's going on he's like oh i don't have time yeah yeah outside we see a cop pulling the scarf that rudy buried in the garden back in the library jenny finally starts walking out of the building when rudy's body swings down in front of her hanging by his feet from above his right hand is bandaged we get a wider shot from the opposite angle from which we can tell that Rudy is hanging intentionally by one foot from the railing above him. So he's he climbed over the railing and he's dangling by one foot in front of her 
but he's obviously not dead because he's he's holding on with one foot Mm -hmm. then he lets go and lands on his face from several feet in the air jenny looks at his body sprawled across the floor as if it were some kind of insect it's just like a mild disgust but she doesn't look frightened at all she's just like oh what she she wasn't startled by any of this like no. she didn't scream or anything either she tries to walk past his body and then he grabs her leg and she finally screams because we didn't see the rest of the bell tower scene and the screenwriters never decided what would happen both characters ask each other what happened but neither seems to remember <laughs> rudy they tells her blacked out. yeah rudy tells her that his hand is bandaged because he almost cut it with the rope i'm assuming he meant that he cut it with the knife trying yeah. to cut the rope <laughs> Because I don't think you do this damage with a rope. And then he bled so much that he lost consciousness and yeah. forgot? Jenny's mad at him for some reason. You, you creep. You had me believing. It was all a joke. You didn't tell anybody, did you? Tell anybody? They, they've been turning the school upside down looking for you and the others. They're even out there right now digging in the garden. I was afraid to say anything. What was the joke? What didn't you tell anybody? It, like her blackout? Did he know that she blacked out? Did he take her down from that bell what does, tower? What does you had what me happened? believing mean? What did he have you believing? What did you think happened and how did he cause you to think that? He cut a rope and he hurt his hand. What prank did he play on you? He said he was going to cut the rope. He cut the rope. He hurt his hand. And she's acting like he led her to believe something else that I have no idea what. Ginny tells Rudy that the police have been looking all over for him. But he must know that because he's been here at the school too. And he's been present for this entire scene. But where has he been? Because he's like, oh, They're wait. all looking for him. So did he disappear and then she was upset because he disappeared as if he was one of the other people that disappeared? I don't know. Unless, unless It wasn't pr- gone that long. Yeah, unless the purpose of his prank is to make everyone think that the his body is the body that they're looking at outside. But like if you have a bunch of friends who are legit missing would you pull a prank where you also pretend to be missing for a little while yeah probably yeah i mean (laughs) but i'm a jerk but i mean she literally she blacked out she woke up in her psychiatrist's office and walked straight back to the school and he was there so it's not like he's been avoiding her for days outside the police lift a dirt clod in the shape of a human skull out of the planter local psychiatrist dr faraday asks the officer holding what he thinks is a human skull in his bare hands, if he can play with it next, and the cop (laughs) willingly hands it off. Faraday uses his bare hands to wipe the soil from the skull, contaminating the evidence with an additional set of prints and DNA samples. Faraday notices something carved in the back of the skull. Uh, Property of uh, Crawford Academy Science Department. (laughs) Which earlier we saw carved in the back of Etienne's head. So it must be his skull. (laughs) I'm kidding. It's a prop from the science class. They're back to having four missing students and no confirmed deaths. Rudy and Ginny approach the garden and Maggie is very happy to see him. Apparently she thought the skull was his, even though he'd have to have been buried months ago to have decomposed that much. And she saw him yesterday or maybe earlier today. Somebody could have spent the time cleaning it. That's true. Rudy, I thought that was you. I'm pretty than that. (laughs) And just like that, Ginny has been dumped and Rudy is back with Maggie, who must also be dumping Steve. Ginny tells Faraday that Rudy cut a small notch in a cheap rope and begs him not to tell anyone for fear of Rudy's lifetime incarceration for rope scratching. Like, she goes to the doctor and says, 
He cut the rope and it fell. Please don't tell anyone. Who would I tell? That's a boring story. (laughs) Ginny invites her psychologist boyfriend to dinner for her birthday on Sunday. We cut to Steve and his other girlfriend, Amelia, smoking pot with Rudy and Ginny, who are apparently back together. Again, Rudy and Ginny are back together. Is this, is this like editing mistakes where they forgot who was with who? Or are they literally changing partners every other scene? I, you, you'd have to have told me who they were with in the first place for me to have realized they kept switching. Because I was like, I don't know, maybe they're dating. Who knows? They're seated by a window into a pool and they could see people swimming around under the surface. Steve says he thought Maggie would kill Rudy after she got over the joy of seeing him alive. Why, though? Because he dated a girl in retaliation for her dating Steve? How come everyone here has two boyfriends or two girlfriends? Now, all the girls are suddenly worried where Alfred the Weirdo went again. They haven't seen him in a few hours. He must be dead. She literally says, Why get serious, you guys? I haven't seen him since this morning. This is the worst fucking writing of any movie that we've covered so far. Like, they need to go in a direction, so they're just like, all right, now they're worried about Alfred. Why? Because they haven't seen him. In how long? (laughs) Who cares? A couple minutes. So they go look for him now. Ginny is horrified when she notices one of the swimmers in the pool drifting past the window, apparently unconscious. Instead of saying anything to anyone she's with, she just gets up and leaves. Right after she does, we see the swimmer rise up again past the window, smiling, happy with her prank on one person in this group. I think the swimmer might be Maggie, but it's hard to tell underwater because her features look slightly different. I feel like it's definitely a blonde person. I think it's supposed to be one of their group. And and there is only one blonde person in the group. Is that Maggie? No. Okay. <laughs> That's Amelia. But Amelia's sitting on the other side of the window. And I didn't even know that there was a character named Amelia. She's Greg's girlfriend. Come on, guys. I uh, don't. <laughs> Jenny drives away from the school and has flashbacks of her mother drowning in cloudy water. She parks outside the cemetery and moves through the gate toward her mother's grave. Alfred, who is of course totally fine, because everything in this movie is a half-assed fake-out, follows her into the graveyard. Jenny lays down flowers on her mother's grave, and Alfred sneaks up behind her. We see him start to pull something out of his pocket, but before he can take it out, Jenny spins around and stabs him with the garden shears that she keeps on her mother's grave. She watches him collapse to the grass, and when his hand falls open, we see that he brought a rose in his pocket as a gift for her. She doesn't show any remorse, so I think we're led to believe that she doesn't care about the rose, and she intended to kill Alfred either way. I I thought, at this point, I thought that she was, like, out of it. That, at this point now, I was like, okay, when she goes into her trances, that's when she does things. She's in a fugue state. Yeah. We cut to the next morning, and Jenny's father is leaving town for some sort of emergency. On the television, we can see a fire on an offshore oil rig, so maybe it has something to do with that. She seems devastated that he's likely to miss her birthday party because she is simultaneously 24 and 7 years old. I promise to be back by Sunday afternoon. Her father tells her that they'll dress up real fancy and have a night on the town, just the two of them, as she smiles and agrees to the date never mentioning that she already made a date for her birthday with Dr. Faraday the same evening. He tells her that she can invite friends over while he's gone, and she counters, I can always call David. Right. I'm sure your psychologist has nothing better to do than hang out with one of his child patients. (laughs) Nothing suspicious about that. We cut to a school dance with disco music blaring. Rudy is still cheating on his girlfriend with Ginny, and Steve is still cheating on his girlfriend with Rudy's girlfriend. 
Between dances, Steve asks to trade dates with Rudy, and Ginny gives him permission to date both of them at once. While they dance, Steve starts hitting on Ginny more overtly. We could be having an even better time. Oh, really? <laughs> How? You could uh, go for a drive, have a toast. Just the two of us? <laughs> Just the two of us. Shame on you, Steve. What would my father say? What does that even mean? And why is Virginia suddenly, like, so aggressive? Yeah, and has Steve ever met your father? Why would he care about you hanging out with Steve when he told you to invite friends over? My guess is that if her father said anything about it, it would be, don't you have enough boyfriends? <laughs> She's literally <laughs> dating her psychologist, David, and Rudy, but shows no hesitation in dragging Steve back to her place. Luckily, he's away for the weekend. I make real good midnight snacks. You hungry? Ginny straight up admits to Anne that she's leaving with Steve, and Anne follows them out. So, at this point, I had a new theory. Okay. Beyond the, the fugue state theory. I was like, wait a minute. Is, is Anne and Virginia, I thought that there was like a Tyler Durden situation going on here. Like she's imagining this other character? Yeah, she switches between these two, like this one really aggressive character and one really meek character. Interesting. And because it's like, has anyone interacted with Anne other than Virginia? And well, yeah, at the very beginning, there are she's yelling at them because they scared her off into the woods. Yeah, but no, but that's again that that could be explained by, like, I guess not. Never mind. Um, <laughs> Stop trying to make this into a better movie. Richard. Yeah, well, but I was like, I was like, okay, there's something because there's something weird going on with these characters. Yes, definitely. We cut to Steve drinking wine in front of the fireplace at Ginny's house, and she walks in with a plate full of shish kebab skewers. They start making out on the floor until Steve complains that his ass is burning because it's pointed at the fireplace. Ginny leans forward and dips another kebab in some sauce and then starts feeding it to him by hand. After a couple bites, she jams the skewer down his throat and he chokes to death on it. I'm sorry, who makes shish kebab as a midnight snack? She makes great midnight snacks. I, I'm sure it's delightful. It's just not something that you just whip up because you got some things on hand that you would, could shit. And like, what, has she been out back grilling? Like, I don't understand. I'm like, guessing that these were all in the refrigerator already made and she just heated them up. Her dad left her some shish kebabs. I had a bunch of leftover shish kebabs yeah. from, mm -hmm. from earlier. And now you're dead from it. The next morning, Anne pulls up to Jenny's house and honks her horn to get Jenny's attention. Anne asks for all the great details of her night with Steve, but Ginny can't seem to remember anything. Ginny tosses the house keys down to Anne and says, Come on up, I'm going to take a shower. In the shower, Jenny has a vision of rain blasting the windshield of her mother's car the night of the accident. Her mom is drinking behind the wheel. Ginny is trying to convince her mother that something doesn't matter, but her mom says she's going to teach someone how much it hurts. They come to the same drawbridge, and Ginny's mother gets her car stuck between the two racing sides of the bridge. From three separate angles, we watch the car drop and flip, landing on its roof in the water. And then from a fourth angle, it lands tires down in the water. <laughs> Below the surface, Ginny's mother tells her that she can escape and swim to safety. Ginny's mother rolls down the window from the driver's side, presumably using the electric power windows, which I wouldn't think would work under the water, but maybe. Maybe they're, they're just dry enough. What, they might have been hand cranks. 
but she's rolling down Ginny's window from oh, the driver's seat. Oh, from the seat. other side. Never mind. I'm dumb. But, like, what... I, I get what she's doing in terms of trying to, like, save her daughter is instructing her, like, look, the car's going to fill with water. At that point, you need to swim up to the surface. Why is she any less capable of also doing I that I don't know. Thing? I think she's pinned is she? in some kind they of way. They definitely don't indicate that. <laughs> Ginny swims to the surface, but her mother can't undo her seatbelt. Oh. There you go. Right, but she, but she plans ahead that Ginny's getting out is right. my problem. So it's not like she planned to have her seatbelt. Also, did... she doesn't seem like a big seatbelt fan. She was also drunk. Yeah. She's a very conscientious drinker, I guess. Seatbelts. <laughs> they kill more people than they save. That's not true. You're thinking of airbags. <laughs> a large ship passes under the drawbridge, and Ginny hits her head on the boat as she swims madly for the surface. She bleeds profusely in the water, and we fade back to the present, where Ginny is watching the water drain out of the middle of the bathroom. At first I thought it was the drain in the shower, but then they cut wider and we see that the whole bathroom is flooded, but luckily there's a drain just in the middle of the floor yeah. for exactly this occasion. Well, that, that's actually kind of cool, because then you could just, it's really easy to clean the bathroom. You can just slosh water around sure, yeah. without having to worry. I just thought it was a strange choice. Much easier to clean up all the bodies and blood. Mm-hmm. She tears open the shower curtains and finds Anne's body submerged in the bathtub. In a second shot, the water is completely stained with blood, and the person in the tub is clearly made up to look dead. But I can't tell who it's supposed to be now. Like, the body changed a little bit, and it doesn't look like Anne anymore. Ginny screams ineffectually for her psychiatrist to rush in and save her. We cut to hours later as Dr. Faraday arrives in the nighttime. Do you guys recall the last time that a psychiatrist agreed to a house call in an empty house with a female patient? The nesting. That's right. Luckily, this time she didn't make David climb out on the roof. She confesses immediately <laughs> that she has killed Anne. Hold on. She, no one made this guy That's climb true. out on the roof. This guy, he, had, he found a shortcut to get to her. <laughs> what a dummy. She confesses immediately that she has killed Anne and points Dr. Faraday to the bathroom upstairs for proof. He drags her into the bathroom with him because he doesn't believe what she's describing. He points her to an empty bathtub with no corpse and she passes out. When she wakes up, Faraday asks why she would imagine killing Anne and he insists that there's a link between her trauma and her friends. She mentions the game of chicken they play with the bridge where her mother was killed and Faraday suggests that she stay here until her father gets home. I assumed they were already at her house, so I don't know where else he expected her to go before her dad arrives. Maybe he brought her home to his place while she was unconscious, though? Well, I guess you mean don't go to school. Oh, maybe. Or don't go out with friends, because it's your birthday. It's past midnight now, officially her birthday. Happy birthday, Virginia. He touches her face, and she kisses his fingers, you know, typical doctor-patient stuff. <laughs> the next day, police canvass the woods right outside Jenny's property. The police knock on the door and ask after Ginny with questions regarding the missing Ann Thomerson, whose car was discovered right across the street from the house, and who was supposedly headed here to see Ginny at the time of her disappearance. Faraday promises to have her call the station when she wakes up. Faraday wakes Ginny to tell her that Ann is missing, and Ginny is quick to blame herself. Faraday assures her again that her friends are simply missing and not dead. He shows her the newspaper that he collected from the porch, and it has photos of Alfred, Steve, Greg, Bernadette, and Etienne. The article around the pictures, though, seems to be from a local Canadian paper, and I quote, Trudeau's flip-flop on cheap fuel will look in the end almost effortless. 
This must be Trudeau Sr. Yeah. Faraday begs her to come up with a link between these disappearances and her trauma, and we cut four or five years back in time to that fateful day. It's actually six years, because that's how long ago her mom died. Ginny's mother is preparing a birthday party, and the six missing students were all invited as the six richest students in her class. That's how her mom decided who to invite. She pulled up the Forbes list (laughs) and invited the top six kids. Mrs. Wainwright doesn't understand why nobody's here yet. Ginny's father calls and says that he's stuck at work and he won't make the party. Ginny lies that all of her friends made it to the party when she speaks with her father on the phone because she doesn't want him to feel worse than he already does, which is probably not bad at all. Ginny finally breaks it to her mom that Anne is having a party at the same time and none of her quote-unquote friends are coming. Why didn't they invite you? Mom, they don't even know me! Mom gets nice and drunk and then drives her daughter to the gate around Anne's property. Pete tells Mrs. Wainwright that just because Ginny is enrolled at Crawford doesn't change who she is. She demands to see Will Thomerson, Anne's father, immediately, and Pete tells her that that's all over with now. So clearly, Ginny's mother has a past relationship with the Thomerson family. I was so confused at this point because yeah. I was like, who's Pete? <laughs> like, who's yeah. this who's guy? Pete? Who's Will? Why does like, everyone have a name? I'm like, is this the doctor? Because it's also like dark. It's night. It's raining. Yeah. It's th- they're through a gate. No, and these like, are all new characters. To, am I supposed to know who this is? Oh, is that the father? Oh, wait, no, no. She's talking about the father like he's not here. Do we see the father? I don't know. who. What is happening? No, but Pete and Ginny's mother have a relationship, which makes me think that Ginny's mother has been to this house before and- So she's interacted with Will Thomerson, Anne's father, at this property. Mrs. Wainwright starts screaming past Pete at the house. You hear me, Will Thomerson? I can't be bought off ever again! (laughs) Mrs. Wainwright says she's going to make the family pay for this disrespectful behavior. Ginny wakes up again in the present, screaming no at her mother, when psychologist Dave grabs her and struggles to wrestle her from the dream. She manages to run off into the house and grab a fire poker and then returns to Dr. Faraday and bashes him so hard with the fire poker that his head seems to explode. The walls are literally splashed with blood like a full bucket of dark red blood across the wall. She drops the fire poker on the carpet across shards of something covered in blood. Yeah, we're going to have to come back to this scene. Yeah. I have questions. As promised, her father arrives home the night of her birthday and brings her presence into the house. Judy! I'm home! He moves upstairs looking for her, and busts into the room that she just drenched in blood. Her father is horrified by the scene. Not my baby! Please God, not my baby! Baby! Dad! <laughs> it just seems like a MacGruber scene. He runs downstairs again and out into the rain. He finds someone standing in the graveyard, but when he spins her around, it's Amelia. She's holding a present for Virginia, but she doesn't say anything. She's just mute, standing in a cemetery, holding a present in the pouring rain. Is she alive? Yeah, she's yeah. fine. Just catatonic? Apparently, somewhere along the line, Amelia was supposed to get an axe in the back of the head here, 
but it was one of the many sacrifices made to get an R rating. But she's alive here when he spins around because we see the back of her head and we see the front of her head. So she's just standing here for no reason. But, okay, but let's say the axe stuff was in there. Does then the dad know what's, like, does she get an axe in the head while he's standing there? I don't know. It, it didn't make it into the movie. Okay. I, I think they're they're probably using editing the other way around. Like, he w- she was facing him and then she turns her around the other way. And then he sees the axe. But there's no axe. We see Uh the back of her head and there's no axe. Then the whole time he's running up to her, her back is facing him. Mr. Wainwright rushes off toward his deceased wife's grave and Amelia drops her present in the mud but continues standing there in the middle of the cemetery. She'll survive the film like that. She doesn't go anywhere. When dad gets to mom's grave, he finds the coffin completely dug up and when he opens it, possibly expecting to find Ginny inside, it's empty. Mr. Wainwright notices the corpse of Dr. Faraday here in the mud beside the grave. Mr. Wainwright moves toward the guest house, which has a light on inside. Within the guest house, though, there is no light on, and Mr. Wainwright finds seven chairs occupied by silhouettes in the darkness around the table. He finds Mrs. Wainwright, Estelle, removed from the coffin and propped up at the table. Mr. Wainwright can hear Ginny singing Happy Birthday to Me as she walks in holding a cake with at least 18 candles. Happy birthday to me. Happy birthday, dear Ginny. Happy birthday to me. Around the table, the corpses of all the missing students have been propped up. One of them has her face down against the table, but we can see Etienne, Bernadette, Steve, Greg, and Alfred so presumably the last body is Anne's. Her father just watches this horrifying scene, sweating profusely. Is he sweating or still covered in rain? Oh, maybe. I don't know. She thanks him for keeping his promise of coming to the party, and when he takes a seat at the table, she places a party hat on his head. (laughs) Ginny makes a wish before blowing out all the candles and then moves to cut her father a slice of cake. Her father blames himself out loud for this behavior, which is no doubt a side effect of the experimental brain therapy she has undergone. She's offended by his apology for some reason and turns to slash open his throat with this insane-looking cake knife. He collapses and bleeds all over the table. Ginny turns up a nearby lamp and moves over to Anne, still face down on the table, but when she leans the body back in the chair and pulls the hair out of her face, it's not Anne. It's Ginny. Oh, dear sister. And so, of course, you would assume that this is an evil twin situation, but it's even dumber than that. <laughs> Standing, Ginny removes a sweater from sitting Ginny, which was only wrapped around the body to confuse us because now both Ginnies are wearing the same dress. Don't worry, I'm still confused. <laughs> Standing Ginny drags sitting Ginny around the room in her chair and points her at all the dead people. Take a look. Take a good, long look. Done it all for you, sister dear. Since I ruined your last party, I've made certain nothing's going to go wrong this time. With everyone's help, they're all here, just as you always wanted all seated around the table waiting to celebrate your birthday. Your precious birthday. And as a special treat, 
They all get to watch you die. A couple questions. This is not one year after the party that killed her mother. This is at least four years and possibly six years later. Yep. How do they pick this birthday to make it up to her? Why would you organize a party to make it up to her and then kill her at it? Doesn't that count as something going wrong? Well, they say, why Why is she doing this at all? Like, what? Well, we'll get, we'll get a little taste of that, why this is happening. Why, when there are ten people in this elite group, are only six of them invited to the party? Yeah, what happened to the other ones? They're what? just wandering around. Who's missing? Rudy's not here, right? Well. No, wait. Anne and Ginny are obviously still alive right now. Okay. And Amelia's just standing in the cemetery. Okay, so that's three. And Rudy just got away. He's just a yeah. prankster. Okay, so Rudy's just not part yeah. of this. He's like the guy in Friday the 13th Part 2 that just went out drinking all night. There's still one more back. person that There's isn't Steve. involved either. Steve, Steve is still alive, right? Oh, Steve? No, Steve got oh. the, the, shish, got the kebab? shish kebab in the throat. Oh, that's right. I thought his name was John. Greg. <laughs> Did Greg come back? No, yeah, no, Greg, Greg got the weights on his neck. Yeah, Greg got the weights. Alfred got the shears. There's only Jimmy. five bodies, so there's five people that are still alive. Right. W- one of which is Anne, one of which is Ginny. One of which is Amelia. Mm-hmm. One is Amelia. One is Rudy. One is Rudy. There's still one Maggie? more person. Is Maggie one? Maggie. Or? Maggie oh. didn't get killed. Okay. She pretended to drown, but she's not here around the table. There were two blondes? Why is Amelia just standing outside for no reason? <laughs> Why did Maggie and Rudy just completely disappear from the film? Oh, what You did this in your notes and you, <laughs> you made me figure it out. <laughs> I, did, I forgot that I did it. This is seven years ago that I wrote this down. <laughs> No, five years ago. We're just reliving this for your birthday for fun. Where is Anne? Standing Ginny puts the cake knife in sitting Ginny's hand, and it's surprisingly clean considering it was just used to open her father's throat. Or their father's throat. No, it's not no, their that's, father's. No, it's neither of their but father's. But right now, they're both Ginny. She has the knife to sitting Ginny, intending to frame her for the murder-suicide of her friends and self. Struggling for the knife, sitting Ginny grabs at standing Ginny's face and pulls off a silicone mask revealing Anne. So Anne's plan was to kill all of her friends as revenge for the time that they had a party and didn't invite Ginny. Yeah, what? <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and spoil right here that this ending was made up on the spot. The original ending was supposed to be that Ginny was being possessed by the spirit of her mother who was regenerating in her head as a result of the experiment. That's cool. Yeah, that's much better. What? Okay, that makes way more sense. I mean, that's still nonsensical, but that makes way more sense. And her tombstone even said, she is still with us. Yeah, yeah. But they were worried that that was too obvious. But also, so they just made something up at the last second. Like, the surgery thing never came back. Like, like right. I just didn't... Oh God. So they had to insert this huge monologue to retcon all of the shit that didn't make sense earlier in the film. Surprised? I hope you are. I planned it so you'd never suspect a thing. None of them did. I dressed like you. Walked like you. I even talked like you. Turns out, every time we saw Ginny kill someone, there was a quick insert where Anne popped out and chloroformed Ginny to knock her out and then killed another person dressed as her. What is the point of this elaborate costume if the only people that see it are about to die? This is great questions. Um, and how was she? How was Anne capable of murdering all these people, moving all their bodies, cleaning up all this blood? Who killed the doctor? 
I think Anne killed the doctor, dressed as Ginny for no reason. I, oh, God. Just to confuse him in his final moments. The same way that she just confused me <laughs> her oh. who she thought was her father at the table here like he died thinking i ruined my daughter's brain and she killed all of her friends and then she killed me that's what he died thinking uh-huh. because for no reason and decided to dress up as Ginny for all these murders right even here at the party where she intended to kill everyone it makes no sense to disguise herself because she planned on murdering everyone only now does Ginny notice all the bodies around the table we hear a little sound bite of each character's dialogue as we pan past their corpse, and for Alfred, we are reminded suddenly that he had a small rat in the first scene that never showed up again. <laughs> now, Anne reveals the final twist of the story. Mrs. Wainwright was Will Thomerson's mistress, and Ginny and Anne share a father, which actually makes it less gross that she's been hitting on her adoptive father for the whole movie. Anne blames Ginny's existence for breaking up her parents' marriage. You've ruined our lives. You should have died that night at the And she swings the knife down at Ginny, who redirects it into Anne's chest, killing her instantly. By sheer coincidence, a cop walks by just as Anne's body hits the floor and sees all the dead kids. Instead of bothering to explain what just happened, she just stands there silently, and then we hear her voice singing happy birthday to me again, but her lips don't match the words. So I don't know if she's supposed to be singing this or it's just a ghostly song. Uh, and then over the credits, we get a theme song using the film score, but adding lyrics to it, yep. which is reminiscent of the theme at the end of My Bloody Valentine from the same producers. I'll have my party alone today. Who cares This movie's stupid. I didn't like it. The dialogue is terrible. I can't understand what's happening half the time. The editing is so bad. And I want to know why she didn't have, like, lizard or amphibian powers. I thought Yeah, that she's that... not regenerating cells like, other than brain cells. So, because they, they made a big deal about using, like, amphibians. Like, amphibians can do all these things. Yeah. Like, they can regenerate powers and stuff. But maybe that would make more sense if you were talking about the mom coming back. Yeah. Uh, but also, the cover art shows her with green glowing oh, eyes. Oh, that's that's new, though. Yeah, that's but... very new. But that implies to me that there was some kind of, like, reptilian or amphibian stuff happening. And I kept yeah. waiting for that to be a thing. <laughs> I kept I kept waiting for, like, oh, they they had to use the, the amphibian DNA in her brain to regenerate because humans can't do that. Like, at the beginning of the hand when we saw the lizard's tail come off and you, we thought it was going to be an implication of something supernatural that the tail could detect. Yeah. 
or like or like I said, like it, like in that you know human brains can't regenerate, but reptil- reptiles or amphibians can, and so they somehow were splicing that into her brain, and yeah, that's yeah, what's yeah. causing her to kill people because she's it's like, half lizard. Yeah, because I was like. That's going to be cool. There's going to be like crazy, some kind of craziness going on with that. She's going to have a long tongue at the end. <laughs> okay, here's another question. So if the if the original plan was to have the mom be the source of all of the murdering or inhabiting of Ginny to murder people, Alfred's uh, being a makeup artist doesn't really make any sense then right i mean the only reason it makes sense is to explain away why he had bernadette's head in his yeah i guess but i'm just saying like are we but we also never brought that back in terms of like did Anne utilize his skills to? i think so i think that's where she got the perfect Anne mask from but that also implies that Ginny mask or sorry the Ginny mask but that also implies that Ginny, at some point over the course of the movie, and I guess if there's a lot of chloroform involved, they could do this whenever they wanted, <laughs> sat down for them to make a, a mask of right. her face. But then did Alfred, like, willingly make a mask of an unconscious yes. Jenny? I guess I, he would. I think that's Yeah, he's yeah, just he a total would. fucking weirdo. Yeah. Uh, Jay Lee Thompson directed this, and he never directed another slasher, and I think he just had no fucking idea what he was doing. I think he, he watched Friday the 13th, and maybe one other slasher out of the corner of his eye and he's like yeah i get it the person dies every couple scenes and they're like relationships you don't know who did it but but the characters know yeah but the the way this movie comes together no scene logically follows from the previous scene uh it's just random what's happening in every scene and the to force a red herring they go so far out of their way that none of the characters motivations make any sense but what what bothers me the most is that when they're talking to each other i don't understand the flow of the conversation like i don't understand one person says one thing and the next person says a completely unrelated sentence and i don't even know what either of them is talking about yeah but Ginny, i have a knife it's like (laughs) okay what are you what are you saying are you threatening me are you saying, what are the chances that I would have a knife here in this moment? Like, so much of the scene is just like, I don't get what you're trying to imply with this dialogue. Yeah. Um, but it made me very frustrated and angry. It's definitely the worst slasher that we've done so far. And the, and because all those effects are lost, uh, the there's kills no, are terrible. There's no redeeming kills. Yeah, the, <laughs> the kills are awful. There's literally no... Like, the shish kebab is the it's most the interesting most, kill. Right. And it's a shit kill. Because yeah. you see one frame of her pushing it into his throat, and then that's the end of the kill. But every other slit throat is just like, okay, it didn't even bleed. We didn't see... Nothing happened there. And I know they tried to make up for it by just splashing blood all over everything, and making the crime scenes as gory as possible but blood by itself isn't interesting yeah it has to be coming out of a wound and and cleaning up the blood like cleaning up all these murder scenes yeah in such a way so that it just appears that these people disappeared uh right oh that's just sorry keep going (laughs) well no because again like to your point jesse she they all know who it is because they see them like the the victims see the killer. And I think the victims are all seeing Anne's face. Even when we're not, 
Or mm-hmm. I, I think they're all seeing Ginny's face. Okay. Even when we're not. But but th- what an opportunity, especially for the male victims who seem to just go with anybody. Right. Like to lure them away to somewhere where you don't have to clean up so much blood. Yeah. Um, no, there was no planning. This is not like a Dexter thing. We didn't plan ahead. We mm-hmm. didn't make a clean room. Right. But when you start introducing this Mission Impossible 2 bullshit where literally anybody can look like exactly anyone else and sound like them and completely replace them for a scene, then I don't even know who the killer was by the end of the movie. Because all I know is that someone took a Ginny mask off of an Anne-shaped face. (laughs) Yeah. But for all I know, that's another mask. So when... Ginny is imagining that she killed Anne and she's in the tub. That was just pure hallucination on Ginny's part that had nothing to do with anything. I think Anne was in the tub pretending to be dead. But she, she? But she looks like Anne for one shot and then she looks away and then when she looks back to the bathtub, it's full of blood and the face is rotted. Mm. Which so, she wouldn't have had time to like change her yeah, makeup. I think that that's pure hallucination, which is weird because that technically then is the only hallucination hallucination in the whole film, right? Other like, than recovering memories that we're we're actually seeing. Yeah, because everything else Jenny experiences is real up until the point she passes out, and then it's it's you know it's somebody else doing these things. Yeah. Either way, I'm actually giving this a thumbs down surprise (laughs) uh because it doesn't make any sense to me and the kills suck and there's no nudity like (laughs) what are you doing you made a slasher film this year in 1981 and there's not even one boob in it you would have been okay if there was if there was one boob boob, a single boob that could have turned my hand you know that might have been a thumbs up but it's not because there's really nothing redeeming about this movie. Well, you know what? I'm also going to give it a thumbs down, but I'm going to go so far as to say that a single boob would not have redeemed it. Yeah. Agree to disagree. Um, I'm this a... Is Richard's giving it a big thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> my, this is my favorite of the slashers. No, it's a thumbs down. And I've moved it down farther and farther as we've discussed. Um, and I would say that uh, I'm a mating pair requirement for boobs. So, yeah, uh, gotta have two, two at least. So that so you don't like odd numbers. You're not okay with the three boob ladies. Oh no no, that's okay. Okay, but minimum two. Oh okay, so they don't have to be in increments of two. Correct. But there is two a there's a lower limit. Yeah. Okay. Like total recall completely <laughs> is okay. But we're not a boob wink wouldn't save this. <laughs> Peek a boob. It needs if you to will. be a blink. <laughs> Peek a boob. <laughs> where's this going letterbox jess uh, <laughs> did your letterbox ever un I, I unfuck did. itself up I, yes <laughs> i managed to get the list up uh i have this at 56 out of 62 it is below firecracker but above hard country all right richard um i have it at 55 also below firecracker though yeah uh but above just a gigolo I also have it just above Just a Gigolo, which puts it in 61st out of 62. <laughs> uh, it's under All Night Long, and it's above Just a Gigolo. It's under All Night Long because I understood what was happening from scene to scene in All Night Long. But this movie, I don't I don't understand. I don't get this whole like key party group of kids where you just... <laughs> 
trade lovers in every literally every scene rudy changes his girlfriend flip-flops every scene from one to the next um i i don't understand still what makes them the elite 10 they're rich it's literally just it's just net worth yeah okay so when they're calling out numbers is that who's the richest Oh, I didn't even think about that. Because I don't know what the number system was based on. Well, I think it's just I thought calling it was just, your position you, in yeah, line. You just pick one. And but but like, obviously, you'd want to go with number one. Yeah, that's what I don't understand. Like, why? Why? It's like, call out your because number. Because Rudy had to clear, like, a curb-sized gap when yeah. you hop the, the bridge. It's like, it's like when you put your finger on your nose. Like, not it. You know, you're, like, you're, oh, just, okay. you're just, you know, like, I'm one. I'm two. Okay, I'm three. But how did more people not say two at the same time? Like, yeah. after the first person says one, doesn't everyone say two? <laughs> I'm two. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like they had an order, a predetermined order to call out their own numbers. Yeah. Oh, um, maybe. So maybe it is based on net worth, that they're literally just, I have the most money, so I have to do the least work. But Alfred didn't seem like he was particularly wealthy. But I guess he has a whole makeup studio, so maybe he is. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I, I think that they wouldn't hang out with him if he wasn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he seems like an outcast, like all the jokes are on him. But seriously, how do you introduce that this guy carries a rat everywhere and he survives so much of the film and then you never see the rat again after the first scene? Like, not that I wanted it to because I explained Yeah, it was already. on the headmistress's desk. That wasn't the rat. It's a different <laughs> color toupee than what the rat wore. <laughs> Our director and story credit was for J. Lee Thompson. He did Guns of the Navarone, the original Cape Fear, Conquest, and Battle for the Planet of the Apes. And we mentioned in our review of Cabo Blanco that he works regularly with Charles Bronson. He also directed Cabo Blanco. So this is his second film on the year for us. Uh, he also directed King Solomon's Mines. Yeah. Writer John C.W. Saxton previously wrote Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS, and followed this with Class of 1984 next season. That's right, 1984. came out in 1982. The other writer, Timothy Bond, he directed a few Alfred Hitchcock Presents, a few Friday the 13th series episodes, Hercules the Legendary Journeys, and Goosebumps. Uncredited writer John Beard also wrote My Bloody Valentine. Music here was from Bo Harwood. He was in the sound department on UHF and Pee Wee's Playhouse. He was a composer on John Cassavetti's titles, like A Woman Under the Influence, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Opening Night, and Love Streams. The other music credit goes to Lance Rubin, who's the composer of the Leo and Lori score and Motel Hell last year. Later, he composed for series like Sledgehammer, Knott's Landing, Dallas, and King of the Hill. Editor was Deborah Karen. She edited Ilsa, The Tigress of Siberia, Meatballs, Heartbreak High, and Meatballs 3. Everyone knows the odd-numbered meatballs are the best ones. <laughs> I thought you just said you don't like odd-numbered meatballs. <laughs> no, no, there's just a there's a oh, lower wait, limit. As long as it's more than one. <laughs> so he likes meatballs three. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa Sue Anderson played Virginia Wainwright. She was Mary Ingalls on Little House on the Prairie. You could totally tell. Like I, I realized that I recognized this actress when. You know, I looked her up. I'm like, Little House on the Prairie. Oh, right. Every scene in this movie, she's just sort of staring off into space. I think she spent too many years on that show because <laughs> she's blind on that show. So she just and, kept doing and it. And so, like, even in this movie, it looked like she was, like, not able to see things. <laughs> That's funny. 
Glenn Ford played Dr. Faraday. He's best known for Gilda with Rita Hayworth. He's Pa Kent in the Richard Donner Superman. So far we've seen him as the detective who got bird killed in The Visitor. He was President Richardson in Day of Resurrection. Lawrence Dane was Hal Wainwright, the father. He played Ralston in Nothing Personal last year. And Braden Keller, the creepy villain of Scanners this season. He also wrote the screenplay for Heavenly Bodies, which we'll get to later, maybe. Frances Highland played Mrs. Patterson. She was Mrs. Gray in The Changeling last year. Tracy E. Bregman played Ann Thomerson. She's in 156 Days of Our Lives, 319 Bold and the Beautifuls, and 1,551 Young and the Restlesses. Jack Blum played Alfred Morris. He was Spaz in Meatballs. Matt Craven played Steve Maxwell. He played Hardware in Meatballs. He was Lieutenant Dave Spradling in A Few Good Men, Officer Capra in Assault on Precinct 13, Chief Deputy U.S. Marshal Dan Grant on Justified. Lenore Zan played Maggie. She's the voice of Rogue in X-Men the Animated Series. That was Maggie. Yeah. David Eisner played Rudy. He was Johnny Venuti, the claustrophobe in Phobia last year, who in keeping with his fear, was crushed by an elevator or something? He, oh, he got smashed against the top of the shaft in the elevator, right? Johnny that Benetti. sounds inappropriate. Crushed by a shaft. Lisa Langlois played Amelia. She was Laura Adams, the rapophobe in Phobia last year. She's Patsy in Class of 1984. Richard Rebier played Greg Hellman. He was Steve in Heavenly Bodies and friend in Adventures in Babysitting. Leslie Donaldson played Bernadette O'Hara. She's Heather in Funeral Home and Christy Burns in Curtains. Murray Westgate played Gatekeeper. He was Archie Standler in The Kidnapping of the President last year. Jerome Tibergine played Professor Harrigard. He was the taxi driver in Oh Heavenly Dog last year. That's the science teacher whose hair sticks up. Karen Stephen played Miss Calhoun. She was Donna, one of the main girls in Pickup Summer earlier this year. Louis Del Grand played the surgeon. Now, I'm assuming when they say that a surgeon played the surgeon, that's just for the hands. And when we're seeing his face, it's Louis Del Grand. And he's the head splody guy from Scanners. Mm. He's also Louis Chacon in 43 episodes of something called Seeing Things. Demir Andre played the junior surgeon. This was his first film. And more recently, he played Charlie Beck in Shazam!, who is clearly named after Charles Clarice Beck, the creator of Shazam. Gina Dick played Waitress Ingrid. She's Linda McAllister, the son's girlfriend in Middle Age Crazy. She was Gretchen in My Bloody Valentine, and she's back later this season for Ticket to Heaven. And lastly, Victor Knight played the conventioneer. He was the engineer in Terror Train last year. He's Dr. Frain in Scanners, and he played teachers in a couple Are You Afraid of the Dark stories. I think that's everything for Happy Birthday to me. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Postman Always Rings Twice, which IMDb describes like so. The sensuous wife of a lunch wagon proprietor and a rootless drifter begin a sordidly steamy affair and conspire to murder her Greek husband. We leave you now with the trailer for The Postman Always Rings Twice. A drifter looking for something. Tell me something, Nick. Uh, just a question. What would you pay a guy? Eight dollars. Room, board, and you say you like my wife's cooking. Your wife, huh? 
a woman, ready for anything. Two people in love. It's just us. It's just you and me. What are you talking about? I'm tired of what's right and wrong. Hang people for that, Cora. Don't look back. What? Don't look back. It's a cop. Oh, God. be with me, right? In love. And out of control. Are you calling? picture that Playboy magazine calls hotter than any uncurbed passion since last tango in Paris. The postman always rings twice. All right, come on. Huh? Come on. Come on. 